0: Oscar podcast. Um, I'm here with Craig Kennedy and Ryan Adams, and we're from AwardsDaily.com, and today we're continuing our series on the early days of Oscar, and this time we're we're going to be talking about the fifth annual Oscars, uh, which were held in November, right, at the Ambassador Hotel. Mm-hmm. And it's not the best year, actually. Most exciting year for, for the Oscar race. Next, next week, next podcast we do, we'll be talking about a really exciting Oscar year. So, um, But we'll be able to find some kind of interesting tidbits about this. Um, the, the most exciting thing about this year, this particular Oscars, is Marlena Dietrich and... Um, Shanghai Express. Shanghai Express. Yeah, <laughs> she was. She was a big money maker at the time, and um, and that's one of the movies that, that is worth revisiting.
1: Absolutely, I love the movie. It may be probably my second or third, first or second favorite movie of the year. I, I really, of course, I like all of the von Sterberg Dietrich collaborations, but this is one of their best. I really mm. like it a lot.
0: So, what people generally think of when they think of this year is they think it was the year that Grand Hotel won, um, and it's all often you know, cited as, you know, that year that the film won, that the, its director was not even nominated. Um, you know, a couple of other years that's happened, Driving Miss Daisy was one, and of course, 2012's Argo. It's not common uh, to have the director not even nominated, but in Grand Hotel's defense, they did only have three nominees for Best Director that year, which was Frank Borzage for Bad Girl, King Vidor the Champ, and Joseph von Stromberg for Shanghai Express.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's just take that a step further, though. Not only was *The Grand Hotel* win Best Picture with a Best Director nomination, *Grand Hotel* won Best Picture without any other nominations at all. Right. The only nomination it got was for Best Picture, and that's what it won.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, that's so bizarre. That's I don't you know, that ever happened and never will again.
0: Mm, I know it never will again for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that Rebecca I think is one that won Best Picture and didn't win anything else, but it was nominated for other things. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And it was also the year that there were two actors winning for Best Actor, and there were only three nominees, which is really strange. But Frederick March won for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Wallace Beery won for The Champ.
1: You know, a a funny detail about that that I never knew before until I started reading up on it a couple weeks ago is a strange thing used to happen at the Oscars in the first four or five years. Since there were so few people voting, they actually tabulated the votes the night of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. On Oscar night, there at the banquet, they would tabulate the votes. And as soon as they got to the count enough votes so that the winner, they would the winner. But it was a little bit humiliating, even more so back then, because the winners, the nominees had to sit there while the votes were being counted. Mm-hmm. And they how many votes they were getting and when, how many, when they fell short when the other when the winner passed them up and so it was doubly humiliating but what happened in 1932 is that first of all let me look here for a second to make sure i'm getting the names right um so wallace berry was announced as winner for the for the right and because they he, he got enough votes to win and so he came up to accept his award and everything meanwhile the accountant still in the back of the room, still counting through the rest of the ballots. And they find out that Frederick March comes within three votes of Wallace Berry. And so they send up a little note to the front of the room. Oh, and that's say,
0: right.
1: You know, you know, actually, it's a tie. We didn't realize, but we hadn't finished yet. It's a tie. So now you have to call Frederick March up to the mm-hmm. to the front. And we don't even have an Oscar for him because we weren't prepared for this to have an extra Oscar. So they had to run out and get an extra Oscar and bring back. And so that was a very strange situation at the Oscars that night where it there was like a good hour or so between the two best actor winners.
0: It is so strange. And but didn't he get the most applause um, for for that for for winning? Because it was such probably a
1: sad. so because it was probably such. You know, it really. I'm sure it was. You know how it is when they when they announce a tie now at the Oscars. It's like oh my gosh, everybody flips out. Yeah. And I think everyone really liked Frederick March a lot, and the, the, Jekyll and Hyde was a great movie.
0: Yeah, sure, it was. It definitely has staying power. Um, Frances Marion wrote The Champ, and she won um, the Oscar for Best Story. Now, think about that. This is the fifth annual Oscars. They had two writing categories, Best Story, Best Adapted Screenplay. And in that category, this is 1931 or 32, Mm-hmm. and you had Frances Marion, who won for The Champ, and you also had... Adela Rogers, St. John's, and Jane Martin for What Price Hollywood? So that's three female writers back in 1932, nominated for the Oscar, and one winning. I mean, that's quite amazing, considering how things went for women later in the um, later in history. At any rate, The Champ, uh, written by Frances Marion, I don't think that Marie Dressler's in that.
1: Right mm, on, no, she's not. But I'm glad you brought that up, though. We've been sort of giving the writers because we focus so much on the directors and Best Picture and the acting no- nominees, we haven't really talked about much about the writers these past two or three episodes. But I'm glad you brought her up. Dang, that is strange. Hang on There's some kind of weird person outside my apartment. Hmm, okay, never mind. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you brought up Frances Carrier Frances- because, you know, this was her second Oscar. It's the second time she won. She won in 1932. So, and so here you have, in the first five years of the Oscar, a woman wins for Best Screenplay
2: twice. Yeah, the same one, the same woman. I had mentioned when we did the first, um, the first year, before we took a break and started up again, that um, particularly in the silent era, but even still continuing into the early part of the sound era, that um, there were a lot of relatively high number of, of women screenwriters. It was, it was. It was a role or a job that I don't think they took quite as seriously. And so it, was, it, it wasn't it was a big deal to them, if that makes any sense.
1: No, it does. I think it does. I, I kind of I remember when you first brought that up a few episodes ago, Craig, that I disputed a little bit. But I've, since then, I've looked into it. And you're absolutely right. There were so many women right? And I think part of it was, in the early days, especially the early days of the talkies, they wanted women, they wanted screenplays that had a lot of, like, witty repartee going back and forth, and they got a lot of their their story ideas from magazine stories, where there was these magazine stories that were written in the 20s and 30s were written by women, and it was a largely dialogue-driven, and they knew that women could do that. And at the time, the, the only screenwriters they had in the in the 1920s were the guys who were writing more of the action time movies right it wasn't that concerned we weren't that concerned about dialogue so when i think that women were thought to be if you wanted to have a dialogue scene between a man and a woman it was thought at the time that you needed to have a woman writing the women
2: as part of the of no the story kidding. or it would wow. you know that's
0: interesting. So that makes
2: a good sense doesn't it yeah and also i think there was a perception and it was probably true too a, a perception that has changed over the years but that, that that women were a large driver of the box office they were the ones that right. were determining what movies got seen and so of course there would be a natural desire to appeal to that demographic which is uh, a desire that has apparently been lost in the last 20 or 30 years but yeah
1: and to have to have a woman t- telling a w- women's story was a really big thing back then because you're right that they knew that the women uh, were big drivers of the box office
0: yeah, and the interesting thing about it is that the, the stories about women are so hard scrabble. Like, they you know, it's always this downtrodden poor mother who's trying to hold her family together, or, you know, it's always a, kind of a mother, a working mother, or a woman who, you know, is trying to get out of a bad situation. And they're dealing with real problems, because I guess it's the 1930s. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you zoom up ahead to the now, and it's sort of like, Maybe you get every once in a while you get a movie about like a drugged out crack addicted hooker or whatever, but or you get um, uh, you know the kind of the minority class, you know the the so the African American community, the Black community, writing stories about being oppressed and being downtrodden. But the kind of stories you get about women, they don't tend to dwell in that world. It's more like kind of an empowering sort of feel goody kind of rom com. You know everything is so like the houses are nice, the clothing is nice. It's very different from back then the way that they were writing about women, the stories that women were, were you know, coming to see
1: uh uh-huh. uh. Of course women still even back then loved to go see movies that were glamorous, because they loved to see the, the the movies about women who had glamorous lives yeah. as a as a wish fulfillment kind of thing to, to go see a movie like that. But you're absolutely right that during the when once the depression took hold, men who had been the the the, the, the breadwinners in the family were suddenly powerless, right? And so it was the mothers and the wives who held the family together. Right. The wives were were the people who managed to find ways to make ends meet. Where the men in the families had had all of their power um, drained away from them, and they right. became in the movies um, criminals and gangsters. And you know.
0: Right. And then you flash forward to the forties, where all the men are kind of going off to war, and the women are home. Mm-hmm. And the stories continue to be about women and what they're doing here. And then, you know, obviously the 1950s, they all became housewives. And then the counterculture with the 60s and then feminism. And, you know, these stories of women have just changed, maybe because they don't want to tell those stories anymore about how they're a wife or a mother. You know, they want right. it to be. And
1: it was very much, I think, part of the power structure in Hollywood. Even even Frances Marion herself, she a famous quote of her, said that they would... Um, uh, Irving Thalberg would always give her screenplays to go over and and beef up the theme, the women's roles. Even if a guy had written the screenplay, he would give it to her wow. to 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 rework and to ghostwrite. You know, and she said she'd have to carry those screenplays around in a plain wrapper or with the covers covered up so that nobody could see what she was doing because there was a there were memos around MGM from. the Male writers saying, talking about the tyranny the tyranny of women. So that the tyranny tyranny of women was even being discussed in 1932. The men were beginning to resent the fact that the women had so much power and were going into their screenplays and rewriting them. You know, right? And so and so there was a re- rebellion against that within the studio system and also within the the censor system that we've talked about before about the code the the Will Hayes code and everything, where women who had been began to be portrayed as having free agent as being free agents sexually, being able to pursue their own love interests and sexual sexuality and stuff like that, that um, Norma Shearer and other actresses in the early 1930s wanted to explore. That got under the skin of a lot of guys. They didn't like to see that. When we think about the 1920s being a, being a decade of, of social upheaval, a lot of the times what we're talking about is the way that women were getting more power in the 1920s. We mm-hmm. talk about the flappers, right? And we talk about women getting the right to vote. And this was, imagine the way that women are talked about today even today, but think about the change that was going on between like 1910 and 1920, the way that women, the, the role of women in society was changing, and a lot of guys just couldn't handle it.
2: And so they it's clamped down on that. It's interesting because you talked about Shanghai Express a little bit before, and Marlene Dietrich was was exactly one of those kind of women. There's that famous line in the film, it took more than one man to change my name to Shanghai Lily when he asked her mm-hmm. if she if she got if she changed her name because she'd gotten married. Mm-hmm. and um, at the time, the, the Hays Code existed, but it was ignored for the most part. It was a thing that was there, but nobody paid any attention to it. Mm-hmm. When they A few years later, when they actually started cracking down on the Hays Code, uh, Shanghai Express wasn't seen for like 30 years. It wasn't until the 60s where it was actually seen again, because even the movie existing at that time was considered too risque for audiences, and it was, it was pretty much swept under the carpet. There's so many movies like that. Public Enemy is
1: another one. When Public Enemy came out, there were a lot of scenes that were acceptable in 1931, but when they re-released it in 1940, they cut about seven minutes out of it because by then, like you said, the, the production code had really taken effect, really a stronghold, and they had to abide by it, and right. there were things that they could film in 1931. Like, for instance, the scene with the tailor, who's the really kind of flamboyant, stereotypically gay tailor who's really enjoying measuring Jimmy Cagney's inseam and his muscles <laughs> and everything. That was that was hilarious See, I mean, it's stereotypical and it's a little bit insulting to gay people, but it was, it was, and Jimmy Cadney's looking at him and like, dude, what are you up to down yeah. there with my insane <laughs> no. scene But they had to cut that scene out for not, when they re-released it in 1940 because it was no longer acceptable. Oh, wow. And so that scene was, that scene was like, almost like a mythological legendary thing that it wasn't seen until, until the movie was restored and put back together in the 1970s. Mm.
0: I get the feeling that they voted on these movies. I don't have anything to back this up, but when I'm looking at the Best Picture nominees, um, most of them are couples movies. They're like a man and a woman, um, except for Five Star Final, which actually I haven't seen, but it sounds like a really good movie um, with, with Edward G. Robinson about tabloid journalism. Oh, yeah. Five-star I haven't climate.
1: seen it either, but it sounds great. You, you, the newspaper movies were really big back then. Oh,
0: yeah. Five-star, and they're really grappling with the same things we're dealing with today, but but it was just newspapers. Um, and that, it only, I mean, it didn't, it didn't like, sweep the Oscars or anything. It says it's an American pre-code film about crime and the excesses of tabloid journalism. The picture was written by Robert Lloyd Byron Morgan from the play of the same name. Um, directed by Mervin Leroy. Uh, the title refers to an era when competing newspapers published a series of editions during the day. In this case, marking its final edition front page with five stars and the word "final." Five Star Final is is also a font similar to those used in newspaper headlines. Mm-hmm. It sounds kind of interesting. I mean,
1: I it does um, really. I'm glad. This up can I go? Can I talk? a thing about last year that we missed talking about again about the writers last year in 1931, the the screenplay that won best best screenplay won the Oscar was called The Front Page. It was another newspaper oh, yeah. story that was extraordinary. I mean, it's an amazing movie. It was a huge hit on Broadway, written by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, and the studios bought it up immediately. Um, I think it was Herman Mankiewicz who you know who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Herman Mankiewicz sent a famous telegram to Ben Hecht saying. Don't let this get around, but there's millions to be made out here in Hollywood, and your only competition is idiots. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, so come out here to Hollywood, and I'll set you up at, at Paramount or someplace, and you'll make all kinds of money, and it's a great job. And so he brought these two Broadway screenwriters, or playwrights, to Hollywood, and they wrote the front page. And uh By coincidence, or oddly enough, Charles MacArthur was married to Helen Hayes, who won um, Best Actress this year in 1932. So they were really a big deal back then, Ben Heck and Charles MacArthur. Front Page is a great movie. It's a little bit hard to find a really good copy of it, but it's about to come out on a new Blu-ray edition in about a week. In about a week, there's a new Blu-ray coming out of Front Page if anyone wants to seek that out. It's fantastic. The
2: story has been recycled a couple of times in Hollywood, most notably as His Girl Friday in Mm -hmm. in 1940. And um, I think, actually, I want to say that Burt Reynolds and Kathleen Turner made a version of it in the 80s. I could they be wrong have. about that, but uh, it, it took place in a TV newsroom rather than at a newspaper, but it was mm-hmm. the same basic idea. They may have, and then
1: Billy Wilder did a, another version in the late 70s I think with um, Jack Lemmon and, and, and Walter Matthau. Right. It, really, uh, it wasn't very good, that version wasn't, but yeah, the, the His Girl Friday is really as, as great as the front page is, His Girl Friday is even better because they, they turn one of the characters into a woman. You know, Rosalind Russell Russell takes the place of the uh, reporter, and
2: Mm -hmm. it's one of the all-time great female comic—not even just comic, but just one of the great female performances of all time. Absolutely, she. That's for another. That's for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's like 1940 or something.
0: This is this this five-star final is interesting because it's similar to, you know, what Orson Welles. You know, has in Citizen Kane when you know the newspapers are competing and it's all about integrity and journalistic integrity and digging up dirt on people and using it to manipulate elections and that sounds like what this was. This is so funny because it's a it's a woman who gets pregnant by a guy who refuses to marry her. She shoots the guy. And then goes on to marry this other man. Um, he's an upstanding member of society. And ha- they have a daughter, Jenny, and, and she's about to marry. I'm reading from Wikipedia here, by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't just know this. About mm-hmm. to marry the son of a socially prominent family. Um, and she's worried that they're going to find out the story about her. So the newspapers start digging up dirt around her. And Boris Karloff is in it, actually. <laughs> and it yeah. says he masquerades as a minister and wins the confidence of the bride's parents on the eve of the wedding. They confess to him that her past will come out. God, blabbermouths. And he, and he uses their information to write a story that Randall prints. Um, so there you go, like trashy tabloid journalism still goes on today. Uh, in fact, probably has more respect today than it did then. Mm-hmm. Even. It's
2: a little dispiriting how little things have
1: changed. Yeah, I know. Another in- interesting thing to say that it stars Edward G. Robinson, who you know, just a year before, he, and Little Caesar but the gangster movies even though we like to think of the 1930s as being a big big decade for the gangster movies really it was just one or two years 1930 and 1931 the gangster movies scared people so much and there was such an outrage against them against the violence that those two movies Public Enemy and Little Caesar pretty much were the beginning and end of the gangster movies in the 1930s this year in 1932 Howard Hughes tried to outdo both of them and succeeded by Mm. making Scarface but that was really the end of the gangster era and then after that, they turned all of these gangsters, like Edward G. Robinson, into newspaper men or like later into an insurance guy for double indemnity. You know, he was still creepy. He was still a strange little guy, but he wasn't a gangster anymore.
2: Hmm. It was the gangster movies that probably had a lot to do with them finally cracking down on the Hays Code to begin with absolutely you're
1: so right Sasha you said two or three weeks ago when we were talking about Norma Shearer and the movies that she made where she romped around Europe sleeping with multiple partners and and didn't have any consequences and was just enjoying herself you said I wonder if that had something to do with them starting to crack down harder on the on the uh, production code and it was the beginning of it she was kind of scandalous there was a lot of gossip about her she got a lot of criticism but since she was married to Irving Thalberg she got away with it but really the final nail in the coffin for that kind of movie was Mae West who I know you're excited to talk about now. Next week, but when Mae West came out with the double whammy of "She Done Him Wrong" and "I Know Angel" in 1933, that was that just was pushed oh, everything yeah. too far.
0: No, no. N- Next week is a really good one. It's got yeah, a lot of good stuff. It. We don't want to ruin it, but yeah, that's it's a you know Katherine Hepburn and Mae West. It's a really fantastic um, mm-hmm. Oscar season. But we're still stuck with this. One. <laughs> so I know. But I mean, at
1: least it. at least uh, Scarface was a 1932 movie, even though it was totally. There are at least four movies that are probably four of my favorite movies of 1932 that got completely overlooked by the oscars and we'll talk about why in a minute but there was trouble in paradise which was like one of the original uber trouble it was one like it would be one of the very first rom-coms trouble in paradise and there was scarface which was like the most violent incredibly violent gangster movie of the 1930s there was love me tonight which was an amazing musical comedy and that is just if you, it's just so far ahead of its time, it's unbelievable that it was totally overlooked by the Oscars. And um, there's another one I can't think of offhand, yeah. but just those, those, and Red Dust, Red Dust with Gable and Gene Harlow it was also 1932. Craig, you've mentioned a couple of weeks ago in email that the reason is because of this strange thing where they held, where Oscar night was in November, the cutoff date for eligibility
2: was in August, right? Yeah, so it, was, any, it was the end of July to the beginning of the next August. So those most yeah. of those movies that you mentioned are were not uh, eligible until next the next pot the next podcast.
1: Yeah, but even then, see the next. They decided to change the date of the Oscars, and so they could get back in, so it would have a, so that the eligibility period would last from January to December. And in order to do that, they had to have an 18-month gap between this current Oscars and the, and the number six Oscar night. So in 19, there's no Oscars in 1933 at all. No Oscars in 1933. We, we wow. have to wait until 1934 before there's another Oscar night because they waited 18 months in order to get back on a regular schedule. And then that, that that's a big. We talk about movies falling through the cracks nowadays, that's a really big crack, you know, that's a really big crack to fall through 18 months. So all the movies that came out at the end of 1932, Trouble in Paradise, uh, uh, Love Me Tonight, um, those movies were completely overlooked by the Oscars because by the time 1934 rolls around, people had forgotten about them. It's a shame, really, because if you look to the Oscars to tell us what movies were great back then that need to be seen, they missed the boat on all of those. There was, the, And on Scarface, too, even though Scarface would have been eligible since it, I think it opened in April, it was a Howard Hughes film, see? Howard Hughes was like the first independent producer. He was working outside the studio system, and everyone resented him That he, that he came to Hollywood and he was going to outdo everybody. And he managed to
2: outdo everybody, but
1: Scarface got no respect at all from the Oscars because he was an outsider.
0: Wow! Oh,
2: right, and you're you're talking about a group that's designed to inflate itself and mm-hmm. has no yeah. use for for the independent producer. I think
0: uh-huh. that this was the first year that they they invite they had um, short categories. Uh, the they started with the animated shorts because the Disney Disney was so popular with Mickey Mouse. So they but they also opened it up. They had live action short comedy and best live action short film novelty and apparently short films were really popular for playing in front of films back then and um, mm-hmm. and I, I think at the the night of the Oscars they did a they did a like a Mickey Mouse animated send-up of all the nominees you can um,
2: actually find that on YouTube Mickey I don't think yeah, Mickey Mouse is in it. Um, I think it, it's in color, and, it, and it's it's just the acting nominees. It has like the a parade nominees. of caricatures of the of the different actors, and it's kind of clever. But you yeah, can, you can search it on YouTube. I don't
0: know if Mickey's in it either. But the, the surprising thing was that despite how popular Mickey was, his his film didn't win. <laughs> Disney won, but they won for Flowers and Trees and, and the Mickey's mm-hmm. Orphans, which was they
1: the... since it was a new thing, it was a new category at the Oscars. They didn't really know how to judge them or how to even nominate them. So they had the people. Who made the short films? They, they had they formed a committee of Max Sennett and Walt Disney and and um, the Laurel and Hardy were on the committee okay. and um, and uh, so the people who were on the committee, lo and behold, ended up. Nominating their own That's movies. That's right. why I was and, just gonna say there's and two. And those were the movies that won.
0: Max said it has two <laughs> nominations.
1: <Exactly. laughs> the people who were on the committee were the winners that year. <laughs> what do you know? Shocking.
0: <laughs> I think I'll give the award was like to myself. There like a half a dozen
1: of them and they all won Oscars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. If I don't let's take this award myself. Thanks for the
1: new categories. <laughs> That's I love the Oscar.
0: Historical. <laughs> I know that people were voters were complaining that um, that a lot of the winners like you know Marie Dresser whatever were my win again and so they tried to lobby the academy to make some kind of rule that you could only win once but they mm. shot that down um wouldn't that be funny though i mean where would meryl streep be without
1: <laughs> i know <laughs> really where would all the blogs be if we couldn't talk about you know two-time winners and three-time winners
0: yeah i know that would be really strange but yeah they know they just uh they just shot it down so but
1: uh about helen hayes um she would she was a Broadway actress. At the time, you know, they were mining Broadway ruthlessly because they needed actresses and actors who could speak in front of a camera, and they knew that they Broadway actors could do that, where a lot of Hollywood actors were, were not as able. And so they went to Broadway to find a lot of talent in the early 30s, and Helen Hayes was a grand dame of theater already in, in on Broadway. And they brought her to Hollywood and found this really kind of tiresome story. It's one of those stories that you were talking about, Sasha, where it's a downtrodden mother who, I think, I believe she... I don't even know the story I think she puts her child up for adoption Because she can't support her It's really tragic But Mm. it's sort of really melodramatic and sappy And Irving Thalberg, when she won the Oscar for that movie He says, see, why do we even try to make good movies When crap like this wins? (laughs) (laughs) And I think it was an MGM movie It was an MGM movie But he he had acknowledged the fact That you can win an Oscar with this kind of stuff
0: Mm. Some things never change (laughs) Exactly, right (laughs)
1: no. <laughs> and the same thing Thalberg uh, a grand hotel was a was an MGM film and Thalberg said when they were working on the story to try to beat it and beat it into shape for, for a film adaptation he said um, the only reason that this book that this novel ever succeeded and the way that the, the reason the play ever, ever succeeded is because this is nonsense and nonsense sells. Mm. And so he, he, he said that about it. although Grand Hotel, I have a lot of respect for it. I like Grand Hotel a lot.
2: Yeah, he I wouldn't run. take his opinion with much of uh, a grain of salt, because he didn't like Sunrise either. He kind of rejected yeah. his, he, he rejected the less, you know, I don't know, the, the, he had a certain attitude about what was a good picture and what wasn't. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. I necessarily agree with him. But it's interesting to see a studio executive undermining his own product.
1: I <laughs> know, of course he did it privately, but all, that's the interesting thing about going way way back into Oscar history. There's probably things being said about movies now that will come to light 30 years from now, but nobody knows what's being said in, in, except for unless there's a um, leaks of Sony or something, you know, that, that that kind of thing. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But now we can look back and we can hear the, the documentation of the quotes of people who were there saying, telling us what it was like.
0: Right. It's it's true. Um, I don't think they all, anybody knew what the Oscars were going to be even still. Like I think they wanted to win them. There was a lot of vanity involved, but I just don't think that they had any idea that it would turn into. I mean, can you imagine these people back then, like Max Senate and these guys, thinking about like this year now and that the Oscars are still going, even though right. the, the movie yeah. business is changing so dramatically.
1: This is this is kind of an. But I don't know. We'll probably talk about this sometime. Next episode too, but the year between 1932 and 1934 was not just an, a year of turmoil in the, in America because it was the depth of the depression. We talked about before how the depression didn't didn't just strike overnight. In 1929, everybody just didn't go suddenly broke. It was two or three years because right. before people realized that it was in, they were in for the long haul and that everybody was going to be in dire financial situation for. For the foreseeable future, but in 1932 and 1933, see a lot of the studios had overborrowed in order to rewire their 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 factories for sound, and and, and they bought a, a lot of sound um, theaters around the country, and they had, all of them had gone deeply into debt. Paramount almost went under completely in 1932, and it would have if not for May West. That's right. And Fox. Um, William Fox lost Fox altogether, he, he had to give it up, he, he, he lost control of Fox and it became part of 20th Century Fox. So a lot of the studios were really on the rocks, and in order to try to maintain themselves and sustain through the hard times, they, they were going to do a lot of really severe cutbacks. For instance, MGM said that, put out a memo to all of the employees that everybody's salary was going to be cut by 50%, everyone's salary was going to be cut in half. And of course, there's immediate outrage because they say, "Well, that's great for you, Louis B. Mayer. You're making eight thousand dollars a week, and you're going to be cut down to four thousand. But how about us, who are making twenty-five dollars a week, and we're going to be cut down to twelve? How can we live on twelve dollars a week?" Right. You know. And so there was a lot of outrage, and this was the beginning. The SAG, the SAG Guild, was started in 1933. Um, the Writers Guild started in, 1932 right. no, no, in 1933. No,
0: no, don't talk about that. That's next week.
1: Okay, well, okay. Is, yeah, it's kind of like in between. we got yeah, so because, much for next week,
0: but you can't. Okay, yeah. Can't yeah. We, we should That's save a lot of this week. for next week, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, next week is really exciting. A lot of that stuff, you're going to have to save it for next week. Okay, I
1: didn't know that that was part of what... I know that... I didn't know that you were well, talking about next to week, my, but I didn't know that that was part of it. Well, okay, if we were going to talk up. about
0: all that, I, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but that... Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, that um, <clears throat> that era, the unions and all of that. That's that's in the next chapter of, of Inside Office. Okay,
1: cool. I didn't know you were gonna talk about that. I'll shut up yeah.
0: then. No, that's Fine. okay. I could just cut okay. that part out. Yeah, but, um good. But so we're in Roosevelt. We're in we're in um the first Roosevelt's first term, right? Um I'm looking mm-hmm. he, he was he,
1: elected in thirty two.
0: Well it says here he's in office nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty two for his first term, is that wrong or
1: Oh I don't know, maybe that is right. Huh. I'm I I I should know that, but I let
0: me see. And then he ran for three terms. No, wait, maybe I could just be totally wrong here. No, no, I'm sorry. Just ignore me. You're right. He was. I was looking at governor of New York. He's okay, president right, yeah, he, from mm-hmm. 1933 to 1945. Yeah. So we we're go. about to enter Roosevelt era, and things are going to change, right, with movies. because. Um, so what we're looking at is Bad Girl and Shanghai Express movies that are kind of you know, pre-code and tawdry, but making a lot of money and helping to save the studios, right? Mm-hmm. So Roosevelt there was going to come in, and, and things are probably going to change, and the Hayes Code and all of that, right? So suddenly, themes and films are going to be very, very different. And heading into the 40s, you're you're barely going to recognize Hollywood because all of that pre-code stuff goes almost completely away, especially where the Oscars are concerned
1: one interesting thing kind of really relevant today about fdr fdr was governor of, of new york as you said and one of his big things on his platform is that um things like tommy guns machine guns in the 1930s once people saw those in movies everybody wanted one mm-hmm. you know re- re- ordinary citizens wanted to have a tommy gun and so the fdr says no we can't have that we're gonna have to ban tommy guns and we can't allow people average citizens to have them and of course what well, what that is is an automatic weapon, right? He was yeah. trying to ban automatic weapons in 1930, and we're still de- dealing with that today, the same problem. And so that's one of the major problems that, about Scarface is because there's so much, you know, they just blow the sets of all the smithereens with these Tommy guns, and people see that in the movies, and they say, I gotta get me one of those Tommy guns, right? Yeah. And so they had to stop that. FDR had to say, no, you can't be showing this in movies and getting people excited about this kind of weaponry. We just can't have that anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see why people are comparing Bernie Sanders to FDR, because Bernie Sanders is a lot like FDR, but the difference is is we're not coming out of the kind of depression that they had in the 1930s, and the country's changed Mm -hmm. so much. And, and, um, you know, all of his stuff that he had with the New Deal, that all appeals to kind of the Sanders supporters who tend to be sort of white, you know, liberal fairly well to do maybe not rich but well to do people who sort of have the luxury of thinking that way you know and and most people out there in america they're, they they want to be rich you know <laughs> yeah. they they want to be rich and they don't want to pay taxes so i don't know if if the fdr kind of philosophy fits today america in, in 2015 Maybe it does, but... Um, in a
2: world where people can, with a straight face, accuse Obama of being a socialist, there's no fucking way that Roosevelt would fly right now.
0: Right. 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 And Rose, but Roosevelt came at a time when, when they needed him, and in fact, the state of the country, it was so dire that mm-hmm. they they would have accepted anything and anyone to help them. They were starving. You know, no right. jobs. Um
1: it, if Hoover hadn't been so so bad, if Hoover hadn't been absolutely impotent as president, I think that I think that's part of it. I think people blamed, wanted to look for someone to blame for the depression, and, and since Hoover was the president, and he was Republican. They thought, well, let's blame the Republican for the depression and let a Democrat have a, a shot at it. Right. It's, it's,
0: but right now we have anger over Wall Street. We have the Occupy people kind of f- funneling their you know anger and idealism through Bernie Sanders you know, to, quote unquote, break up the big banks or, you know, remove the wealth from the Koch brothers, never going to happen, overturn Citizens United, that might happen someday, but not with a Republican Congress, not a chance, mm-hmm. and a Republican Supreme Court that actually, you know, gave two, you know, approvals to the two different Citizen United bills that came up, Citizens United and McCutcheon, both. You know, were approved by our Supreme Court, so undoing them is going to be tough. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not like he can be in office, wave his magic wand, and that's going to happen. That's the only way you can redistribute wealth when it comes to elections, and even then, I I have my doubts that it's that it could even happen. But
1: and the other only other way to redistribute wealth is to is to to fix the tax code back. The way it was in there in the nineteen fifties and early sixties where the where the billionaires are paying fifty percent or sixty percent tax rates, which would still leave them with a huge mountain of money, but they're not gonna sell they're not gonna go for that now, not after years and years of only paying eighteen percent.
0: No, I mean there's no question we needed the New Deal at that time in the early thirties. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything he did I think helped America grow. You know, Republicans would argue that it created the dependency class, you know, the takers. But um, Whatever those problems are they they still exist in different communities in this country, and they still we still need that those social programs. It's just that I have my doubts, and you guys obviously agree with me that this isn't a time where the country's going to want to move more radically left. They don't really have an incentive like they did in this this time, the 1930s
1: right yeah, and enough so not enough people not enough poor people or not, not enough middle class people are really so dissatisfied with the way things are going to have that kind of a people
0: only in as much as their definition of self and happiness only in as much as their idea yeah. of how can i feel good about who i am in my country well i can i can vote for a guy whose ideals reflect mine you know and that's it like mm-hmm. i have a bummer because i don't like who i am i don't like this country i want to feel good about my country again that's really the thing that's driving them Mm-hmm. Um, because anybody with a brain knows he can't enact any of these policies, right?
1: Right. Another thing, too, in the 1930s that the FDR was a master at was was the media. He did his fireside chats where people would gather around the radio and listen to to uh, Uncle FDR tell him that things were going to be getting better, that happy days will be here again soon, and that right. kind of thing. And they, they loved that. But now, of what is the media turned into. It's the opposite of that.
0: It's the opposite of that. And also, lest we forget, you know, he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't, he, his programs were socialist, but he didn't call himself a socialist, I don't believe.
2: No. no. FDR, no, no, and that. um,
0: that's the difference. So, there you go. Sorry, plane going over. It's okay. Yet another plane going overhead. He One just can't escape
2: about those
1: things. One more thing about Scarface, I really do love Scarface so much and, that, and Scarface is another one of those movies, Craig, like you were talking about that was so shocking at the time when it first came out that once it ran once it did its, its first run in theaters, it wasn't seen for years and years and years. It didn't even come out on VHS tape and, or on DVD until like you know the year 2000. I mean it was it was years before anybody could actually get their hands on a copy of Scarface to watch unless you went to a museum. Retrospective to see it, and so people had heard about it, but they didn't really know what it was all about, about why it had attracted so much attention and caused so much uproar. Mm. But the the Hughes had it ready to go in 1931. He was really ready to jump on the bandwagon with Public Enemy and Little Caesar, but they got hung up in in the censorship process because they wanted to they wanted him to add things to it. They added this entire middle middle like five minutes in the middle of the movie. They have an intermission where these this um, group of concerned citizens come on and address the camera. They're facing the camera, talking to the audience, talking about the the, the perils and the dangers of violence in, in movies. And then, then after the five-minute intermission, we're back to the movie. It's the strangest thing. In the middle of the movie, you have this public service announcement against violence, and then you're back to the violence. Mm. And they had... Howard Hughes add this this 10-minute section to the end of the movie where we see Scarface um, go to trial and he, the, he, the jury and the judge and all that, and we see him get hanged. They made him add that on to the end of the movie in order to have it pass the censors, and then it still didn't pass the New York censors. They still wouldn't pass it. So Hughes says, well, to hell with this. I did everything you guys wanted me to, and you still won't pass my movie, so I'm just going to go back to my original version. And mm-hmm. so there were so many versions floating around the country that some people in parts of the country saw the hanging version and some people saw the really ultra-violent version. And so we didn't really ever have a definitive version of what the movie was like, and we still probably never will because there's, like, footage that's lost forever. Um, it's an amazingly violent movie when you see it the first half an hour or so you think well this is not so bad it's weird because there's an obvious incestual relationship between scarface and his sister that is really overt and blatant and she even talks about it his sister <laughs> talks about it in the movie that your 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 attitude toward me is really creepy you know and it's, oh, it's very clear that he's got a, a romantic sexual attraction to his sister and it's they don't make any bones about it wow. so there's that going on at one point he like Halfway pulls off her her dress. She's got a strap um, a, a strapless gown. Ga- a strap down, and he pulls one strap off. And she's standing in front of a window that has like a lace curtain in front of it. And so all across her exposed breast is this lace shadow and you're looking at that, it's like, is that a nipple? I think that's a nipple. And it's amazing they could get away with that in wow. 1932. You know, they really, he, he like halfway strips her clothes off and she's standing there with the breast exposed, basically.
0: But they kind of put the kibosh on that, though, right?
1: Oh, yeah, they absolutely, they they, they made him trim, who knows what, all, what, what what all they made him trim, but that part has remained in the movie, where you can still see that he rips her dress halfway off. The, the sets that they shoot at you think how were they able to do that with special effects back then and they didn't use special effects they used real Tommy guns to shoot the sets up Absolutely, use real ammunition on, on the soundstage. Um, I think Harold Lloyd, the comedian's brother, w- went to see the filming one day of, of uh, Scarface and they told him, okay, stand over here and observe, watch while we're going to just actually just shoot this set all to pieces. And he changed position so we could get a better view. And a piece of shrapnel hit him in the eye and blinded him in that eye forever. I mean, they tried to save his eye, but he was blind in that eye for the rest of his life. Oh. And that's on set. God. It's a- it's it's incredible that this, that when Howard Hughes saw the first car crash that Howard Hawks had filmed. Howard Hawks, the same guy who directed *His Girl Friday*, directed *Scarface*. And when he saw the first car crash, he said, "I want four more of those. Put four <laughs> more car crashes in the movie." Wow, <laughs> I <laughs> love Howard I- Hughes. He, he was fantastic, Switch. but he, he was so he felt so burnt after her. and uh, for the way they had treated him over *Scarface*. He didn't make another movie then for like eight or nine years.
0: Can I just say that I can't wait till we get to the part where it's just one year, and it's not like two years in one or I know, midyear really. when It's, yeah, or it's like, just half years.
1: And... Definitely, because we're talking about movies that weren't even in the Oscars. You know, Scarface didn't get any Oscar recognition whatsoever. Right. So I just, I just wanted to bring up the fact that there's lots of movies that the Oscars have missed the boat on for various reasons, and this is one of them.
0: Um, it should be said that we—I didn't say this before—but um, Walt Disney did win for Mickey Mouse, but he got an honorary award for the creating of Mickey Mouse. Mm. So you could we could refer to the fifth annual Oscars as the Mickey Mouse Oscars if you want to. Yeah, that didn't
1: would... Disney end up winning like over his career thirty three Oscars or something like that? So this year was his first two. Wow. <laughs> oh, another person who who um, I don't think he was nominated this year. Hans Dreyer, who was the art director for Shanghai Express. All of von Sternberg and Dietrich's movies are so atmospheric, and they're just thick with, with the... You know, he was a really a world creator. He was a creator of worlds and atmosphere. Mm. He, uh, all of these things like Shanghai and Morocco that he created it, it you really felt like you were there. They were this densely detailed. And Hans Dreyer was responsible for all of that. Hans Dreyer had come over from Germany... He was a set decorator over there, and he come over, and his first movie in America was Wings, which he was not even in the credits for or didn't get nominated for. But then he was nominated for just movie after movie after movie from 1927 to 1946. 19 times he was nominated and never won. He was like the, he was like the Roger Deakins of, of art directors in the, <laughs> in the early 30s and 40s, uh, just nominated time and time again, but never won. Finally, though, he did win for Sunset Boulevard. Nice. Yeah. So, And I think he won two other Oscars Just before Sunset Boulevard But it was 1947 before he started winning Strangely enough, after 1951 He didn't make any more movies he, That was the end of his He just stopped He didn't die if, He was still alive for another 15 or 16 years But he quit after Sunset Boulevard
0: So, three movies that didn't get nominated that year Other than Scarface Scarface is probably the big one But also mm-hmm. Frankenstein Freaks
1: mm-hmm. Freaks
0: And Tarzan the Ape Man.
1: Wow.
0: Red Dust also did not get nominated.
1: And and like I said, I mentioned before, but I didn't want to make too big a deal about it. But anyone who has not seen Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise or Mamoulian's um, Love Me Tonight, those movies are like the beginning of the most brilliant era of musical romantic comedy ever, mm-hmm. and they invented the form, really. Those two directors, especially Lubitsch, direct, don't you agree, Craig? You've seen *Couple yeah. in Paradise, right?
2: Yeah, I just think we should talk about it next week when it was eligible.
1: Uh, it was eligible, but since it wasn't nominated,
0: Again, I know, I but yeah, see, okay, okay.
1: It, 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 I, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah.
0: I know you want to talk about next week, I do too. <laughs> I totally want to talk about next week, but um, I only can do it in order of the inside Oscar book, you know what I mean? Like that's how right. I divide it up, but um, but we can uh, talk
2: about it being omitted next week, okay? That's what we'll did talk, we talk about.
0: You're about right. Did we talk enough about Grand Hotel, our best picture winner? I don't think we really we did. We didn't talk about it at all. Did anybody, mm-hmm. has anybody seen it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen it
2: a couple of times. I love it. I mean,
0: yeah. it that's was not. Really like, I want to crazy. be alone. Is it, it? It's.
2: It's not. It's not one of those edgy, sexy, ahead of its time old Hollywood pictures. You know, it's pretty stead, stayed, and it's. It's. Uh, I don't know that the. It really is it's drama, drama, but it's, right? it's an, it, with amazing it is, actors and mm. they all do great work. You've got two Barrymores, you've got Garbo, you've got Beery, pretty much, you know, just a, a murderer's row of great acting. And you've got a young Joan Crawford tearing things up too.
0: Mm. And it's,
2: mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of, and it, it, it uh, kind of was the template and has been the template for decades afterwards of especially especially in the 70s a lot of the disaster movies like airport and all that kind of stuff where they would jam a movie with a bunch of stars and have like seven different stories that were not necessarily even related but sort of maybe maybe tangentially related that was sort of the template for all of those movies mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's entertaining as hell it's not it's not a groundbreaker it's not it didn't change what we think of when we think of cinema but it's uh it's fun to watch. And based on a novel
1: written by a woman, who is a really a huge best-selling novel. And like I said, Craig, it was the, temp- it was the very first probably all-star movie. And MGM had the biggest um, collection of stars in Hollywood, and they bragged about that, and they wanted a way to showcase them. But the thing about it is, when you have an all-star movie, just like Towering Inferno or Airport or, or the Poseidon Adventure, like you said, You've got these great stars, but they don't have—they can't have, they can have enough, really very much screen time because when you have 10 stars, the maximum screen time they can have is about 10 minutes apiece. Right. And so it's kind of hard to know who's the—there is no real star of, of Grand Hotel. I. You...
2: That's what's surprising to me about the presence of Crawford, is she's not even one of the top bill because she wasn't famous yet, but she actually mm-hmm. has more screen time, I think, than— than some of the some of the bigger stars, and she's great in it. But yeah, uh, yeah, she I think her story. Story, to your point, they, nobody nobody really gets a chance to to really take over the picture.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that Joan Crawford story and Wallace Berry story is probably the most interesting story in the movie. It's hard to know. People think that Grand Hotel is me and Greta Garbo movie, and of course she's great in it. But it's really more a Joan Crawford movie, I
0: think. And, like you green. know, she was saucy when she was young. Mm-hmm. People remember oh, yeah. her from, yeah. like, Mommy Dearest era. Right, exactly. Yeah. But she was sexy. She Just was a hot. sexy dish back Absolutely in the day. Absolutely was, yeah. <laughs> she really was, you know. She had sex appeal in a way that, that you know, obviously Marlene Dietrich and a few other women had. But but that was, you know, she definitely exuded sexuality, I thought. On I and off screen. At least
2: yeah. until Mildred Pierce, when she started to seem a little bit matronly.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. exactly, in the 40s. You know, someone on
1: Twitter just just a few days ago, I I, I hate to even repeat, well, I don't hate to repeat it, because I'm about to, obviously I love to repeat it. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said about Joan Crawford, they were looking for the source because they had heard the rumor that someone once said that Joan Crawford gave the best blowjobs in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I know, I heard that too. (laughs) Jane Fonda too.
1: (laughs) And so they're trying to pin down where that came from. And so I don't know, but that was, apparently that was the rumor back then.
0: (laughs) Joan Crawford gave the best blowjobs until Jane Fonda, and she supposedly gave the best blowjobs. Is that right? Yeah, because supposedly she had like a trick jar or something. Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) And this is what runs Hollywood, really, when you get right down to it. true.
0: Oh, God, the casting coach.
2: You know, and speaking of of sexist remarks, um, you you talked about how Thalberg hated all of these pictures, and you also pointed out how uh, uh, Grand Hotel was based on a novel written by a woman. And I think really that is the root of a lot of Thalberg's dislike of some of these pictures. He would use words like sentimental and that kind of stuff. But what he's really saying, that's just code for, for women's pictures, which I think he didn't have a lot of patience for
1: yeah you may be right I hadn't thought of it that way that sounds uh, reasonable another fun kind of thing kind of fun thing about Grand Hotel I see way down in the cast uh, the the guy who plays the porter the porter in the hotel was Gene Herschelt
2: yeah the humanitarian award not named
1: guy he he was so beloved in Hollywood even though he was way down the list in just a really small role in in Grand Hotel and all of it I can never think of any movie where he was a star but he was apparently just a really
2: great guy and so they named the humanitarian award after him
1: (laughs) that's cool (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up i was thinking of him and i couldn't remember which movie he was in and why it mattered and then and i didn't have my computer in front of me so i couldn't look but you yeah. nailed it
0: yeah. yeah just tell me one thing was grand hotel i want to be alone was that garbo yes okay yeah. famous mm-hmm. saying i she, want to be alone she yeah.
1: plays it's this sounds I, this is one thing that a problem. That, with the movie, I mean, she's great in the movie, but she plays a ballerina. Of all the things that I can imagine Greta Garbo doing, I can't really see her on stage as a ballerina yeah. in a tutu. Right. I mean, that, this doesn't. I, there's a disconnect there.
0: I just love it that she was so popular and enigmatic, and people loved her. Like, I don't. I get the feeling that if she was a star today, she would have the same. Kind of I mean she she's beautiful but she's not beautiful in the way that celebrities are beautiful today you know she's uh she's
2: not beautiful like she probably gives the best blow to jobs in Hollywood <laughs> right
0: <laughs> <laughs> she was well, the just other thing be... about
2: her too is that pretty much at the height of her popularity she just stopped and disappeared yeah. from mm-hmm. society
0: oh is that it really what happened
2: became this enigma
0: when did she disappear like what era uh
2: I don't have the date in front of me
0: but about no, sir, yeah, but it was yeah, I, I think I think
2: 33 or 34. Really, was like her last picture. She got some scathingly horrible review about one of her pictures, and that was it. <laughs> she was never heard from again, and oh. she was very little even seen by people who weren't. Friends or relatives.
0: That's she, made, she makes four
1: more movies that are notable after after Grand Hotel. She makes Queen Christina, and she makes Camille, and she makes Nanacca. And I think after Nanacca, that was she was over. She was That's
0: ready. it. Huh? Do you, do do people yeah. think that she's um, that she's the character in in Sunset Boulevard? Do, do people think that that um,
2: hmm. uh,
0: Gloria Swanson playing Greta Garbo? Or...
2: I doubt it because she doesn't seem like somebody who was still clinging to her past. She literally just, she didn't, she wasn't shoved out. She chose to disappear. Whereas the Greta Garbo or, not, or the uh, Gloria Swanson character was, you always got the feel at least I always got the feeling that she was somebody who was aged out of Hollywood and, and resented that.
1: Mm-hmm. So... There's a story about, you know, so the, the character in Sunset Boulevard is Norma Desmond. There's a story, and I'll have to look it up cause... I can't think of it right now. It's on the tip of my tongue. But Billy Wilder says that the code, there's a code in Norma Desmond that tells you who he was thinking about when he made it. Because there's a Norma and a Desmond in Hollywood history that that relates to who he was thinking about when he, they created that character.
0: Oh, weird.
1: I have, have to look
2: that up.
0: So did she just live on money from her movies?
2: I guess so. Uh, I don't know. I, I, she, I don't. I actually don't know that much about her.
1: She must have because she lived in a really posh, uh, uh central park west apartment yeah. for for years and years you know so she must have been really well paid and must have invested her money well in she to was one of the
2: first to make like a some whatever the ridiculous sum was i, I want to say it was a Million dollars but it may not have been a million dollars when they convinced her to come over from europe in the first place so she was uh-huh. really well paid for the films that she made yeah.
0: and did she marry or anything or
1: i don't think so i was about to say you know because you know how i am about the gay and lesbian st- backstories and stuff when we talked about how she probably didn't give the best blowjobs jobs in hollywood i think because she was doing other things besides blowjobs.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't interested in that so much right. so the, you know there's there's rumors that Lots of lesbian affairs. That's when one of them. I wonder about
2: those rumors, though. Not that I'm bothered one way or the other, but yeah. I feel like a lot of uh, it happens to men, too. But if you don't get married and if you don't put out, then you get tagged with the lesbian tag. Mm-hmm. That's true. I agree with and, that. Absolutely. And that, and both of those things could certainly apply to her. So, but you know. I do.
1: I do think that Marlena Dietrich herself said that she it always irritated her that that Greta Garbo never wanted to talk about their affair. She doesn't say it in those words. I mean, she she doesn't say it that explicitly. But that was the impression that you get from Greta from Marlena Dietrich in later years that why did why is Greta Garbo so secretive about it when I'm so open about it?
2: Right.
0: It says here that her public persona. Um, she preferred, I totally can relate to this, by the way, she um, avoided industry functions. She preferred spending her time alone or with friends. She never signed autographs or answered fan mail and rarely gave interviews, nor did she ever appear in any Oscar ceremonies when she was nominated. Her aversion to publicity and the press was undeniably genuine and exasperating to the studios at first. In an interview in 1928, she explained that her desire for privacy began when she was a child, stating, as early as I can remember, I have wanted to be alone. I detest mm-hmm. crowds and I don't like many people. <laughs> mm. Um but they the studios kind of capitalized on that and created the Garbo persona, you know, the mm-hmm. I want to be that, alone and
1: mysterious, and, enigmatic, exotic, uh, brooding, youth, unapproachable, unattainable. Right. It, yeah, that was really a hot thing back then. You know, and so and especially in the face of so many actresses who were kind of in the face in your face about their sexuality, she was Always pulling away. Yeah, and it, it
0: says here in Wikipedia that she suffered from lifelong melancholy and depression and moodiness. Um, she told a friend on the eve of her 60th birthday, she said, "In a few days, it will be the anniversary of the sorrow that never leaves me, that will never leave me for the rest of my life." And to another friend, she said in 1971, "I suppose I suffer from deep depression. Mm. I am very happy one moment; the next, there is nothing left for me."
1: Oh, terrible. I'm glad we'll have a chance to talk about her for at least four more movies, the four that I mentioned, so that, because she's really a fascinating person and a fascinating character.
0: Definitely. We'll go on to talk about Garbo. We'll make sure to. Um, uh, a- uh,
2: Grand Hotel wasn't her first sound film, was it?
0: I think it was, Yeah.
2: So that would that would have been the one that was advertised with the tagline Carbo Talks.
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh huh. I and guess then, so. You're right. And then or, she says, "I want to be alone." Like I think that's how they, they capital. I think that's. Right. I remember reading somewhere. You guys might want to confirm it, or any readers that might be listening, lead, listeners that might be listening, confirmed that that was her first talkie, But I have a feeling that that I read that when they. Said uh, she finally...
1: might be Anna Christie. Anna Christie might have been her because it looks like she made Anna Christie in 1930. Oh, okay. So the, yeah.
0: And that's sound. Uh,
1: Yep. Yeah, that is sound. Yeah. One more thing about um, Grand Hotel that's kind of interesting. And uh, in talking about the way that Thalberg had different ideas about the way he wanted his movies filmed and presented and, and marketed and everything. For the Lionel Barrymore role, he wanted Buster Keaton. And for the um, John Barrymore role, he wanted Clark Gable. But they either, for some reason or another, various reasons, those deals fell through. And so they ended up with both of the Barrymore.
0: So it says here on Wikipedia, she never married, she had no children, and she lived alone as an adult. Her most famous romance was with John Gilbert, whom she lived intermittently in 1926 and 27. Um, And he proposed to her. And she wrote, or she said after that, I was in love with him, but I froze. I I was afraid he would tell me what to do and boss me. I always wanted to be the boss. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> he was one of her co-stars at least, for at least one picture and probably more than that yeah. back in that, back and in that d- day. and it
0: does mention that she, she she was rumored to be gay or at least to have relationships with women. Yeah, I kind I of feel like
2: should... if people are rich and powerful enough that they're pretty much always going to inclinate towards being at least bisexual because they can.
1: Yeah, I was going to say exactly. When I talk about gay and right. lesbian people, I always... I should. I should always because we know that they had relationships with with both genders with both sexes I should always say that they're bisexual because that does that is a thing that exists and certainly existed in 1930s Hollywood
0: yeah she died in 1990 at the age of 84
1: Uh oh
0: yeah well, that's a sad way to live your whole life decades I think upon so decade.
1: yeah, I guess, but I did I think I've also heard that like she would go jogging with with uh, Catherine Hepburn Hebburn in Central Park, so it's not like she had a she was, didn't have any friends or anything that she yeah, died I think she around. had a, a
2: vibrant right. but contained mm-hmm. social life. it was just yeah. um mm-hmm. just it private. Was just the public she had no use for, which um, right. who can
0: blame her? Mm-hmm. right, yeah. and so no one could really write about her much because she didn't right. give herself over to those kind of interviews mm-hmm. and stuff, and people who knew her probably protected her privacy
1: right. But still, when your when your face is that well known, it must have been hard to go out in public unless you're wearing hats and veils all the time and not be accosted. You know, instead of living, especially living in New York City, trying to stay uh, anonymous would be hard. Yeah. So you have to become sort of reclusive.
0: She was a, a dinner guest to uh, to John F. Kennedy and his wife. Isn't that funny? And yeah. they found her to be yeah. funny and charming. Mm.
2: I think it's a lot like I think that the media and the public in general tends to freak out when people are private because it just doesn't seem right to them. I mean think of all the weird the weird myth kind of cult thing that sort of developed around um, what's his name, the director. God damn it. The Tree of Life dude, what's his name?
0: Oh Matthews Malik.
2: Like, yeah, everybody like freaks out and like there's one picture of him and everybody goes nuts for it because it was the first picture they've seen. I think a lot of people just don't buy into that, that celebrity bullshit. And they just want to be, they're completely, perfectly normal, reasonable human beings, but they don't have any time for the nonsense. And so they don't participate in it. And people just assume that's somehow weird. And it's really not. It's actually kind of normal.
0: It is in a way, but the, the thing that intrigues me most, and the thing I'll probably go down the rabbit hole about on this, is, is why, <laughs> what was the thing? What was the one thing oh. that made her say, okay, that's it. I'm done.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
1: especially oh, yeah. to say, what, to, 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 to end her career. because That's what I mean, think, her career, yeah.
0: not her life. Mm-hmm. I understand that because mm-hmm. yeah. I'm that kind mm-hmm. of person, believe me.
2: I, I just think I, I I'm not sure, but I think you'll find that it was the reviews over Nanochka. I don't remember. It's 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 well liked now, but I'm not sure at the time that it was very well received. It was our first entry into comedy. And mm-hmm. uh it was Lubitsch, right? Nanochka? It was Lubitsch, yes. And didn't Billy Wilder write it?
1: Uh he did write it and with uh, okay. Charles Brackett, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't think it I, I I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that it was not well received and that it was the reviews over that.
1: There was one more movie that I it was called 2 faced Women" that she made. Woman that she made in 1941. That was a uh, that George Cukor directed. So you would think that it had you know some substance to it. And it looks like the screenwriters are top notch. And Melvin Douglas, Doug, Melvin Douglas was her co-star. So it looked like a top-notch movie. So there was one other movie that maybe she had in the in the pipeline at the time. But there's some. You're right. Something happened around the time of Nanatska that that soured her on the Hollywood scene. And I've I kind of wonder too if it wasn't because she didn't like the rumors that were being spread about her, you know, that because of the rumors that we have today were still going around back then too, I'm sure. Right.
0: Yeah, I I wonder. I mean, yes, I think it was the reviews, but I bet that there was another component to it, a kind of a this is bullshit kind of component. Maybe they were Mm -hmm. telling her she needed to do this and she needed to do that, and it was really overwhelming to her. Maybe she was like, you know, I have to, you know, they're like, yeah, you got bad reviews, and in order to do this, you have to do this, and you have to do that. Maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. But whatever it was, it was overwhelming enough for her to just completely walk away and never return, never.
2: Right. And well, it's without that's so not... much as doing an interview. No. Mm-hmm. Except maybe mm-hmm. occasionally.
0: She shit canned it. That's it. I'm done. And that's
2: that... I mean and I think that that's kind of what I was getting at before. I think that's what freaks people out because most people dream of being celebrities and they right. think, Oh, how great it would be to have all this money and all this fame. But and and to see somebody have all of those things and just to say, Nope not into it and walk away. I mean, even yeah. even Johnny Carson even kind of freaked people out because he said, before he retired, once I retire, that's it. You're never going to see me again. And except for an occasional appearance on Letterman, he, he literally disappeared.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and it, was, J- it was
2: weird for people.
0: JD Salinger too. I mean, I yeah. understand it. Believe me, I do not look at that and say strange. I completely understand it. I, I am one of those people, but I'm just saying that um, with her, and she she struggled with depression so she was sad and she did at one point want to be in a star you know because she acted in these movies and she was beautiful mm-hmm. and she was notorious and beloved um it was probably the reviews but it was also probably um you know the pressure and the sadness i i bet that it was mm-hmm. so it hurt her so badly to hear that stuff and she probably wasn't prepared for it you know right and I never got the
1: impression, either, that even though she was uh, happy to be in movies for a while, that she was really ambitious about seeking movies out. I, it's more the, as if she was swept up into it by people who saw her potential and, and dragged her into it, and then she found herself in, in in the scene and making lots of money, so she went yeah. along with it for 10 years, and finally she said, I've had enough of this. Right. But it's not yeah. as if she
2: had the... She 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 made a name for herself in Sweden, but it was Hollywood that came calling to her and threw all this mm-hmm. money at her to convince her to come to Hollywood right, and do her thing. Right. Yeah, that's what. Well, I Well, mean. that makes
1: said sense. It, you said it much better than I did. Correct. That definitely well, there's been makes other sense. other actresses, I guess, who have thrown it, thrown in the towel. Deborah Winger did to a certain extent. Carrie Snodgrass, who was nominated for an Oscar for. A, but Diary of a Mad Housewife, she was got Oscar nominated and then kind of disappeared. So it's not. Well, Deborah totally Winger didn't do it by of. choice.
0: The work dried up for her. She did not do that by choice. Um, yeah, I'm sure to there. To an extent, are... with
2: Deborah Winger, too. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah that's no. True. But but yeah, that's true. Um, but And I can understand that if she liked acting in Sweden, but then coming over here and the whole idea of celebrity. But also, you know, any of us who do creative endeavors, we know how hard it is to get anything done because of the fear of failure is so great. It's sort of like, you know, you you got to... Anybody, from Dustin Hoffman to Hemingway to anybody like that, like Fitzgerald, whose novel The Great Gatsby wasn't published and, like, had remainders and didn't sell or anything, and he, thought mm-hmm. he, he died thinking people hated The Great Gatsby... But, um, so, you know, failure is a hard part of being a creative person. And I think some people, when they feel that and they have to, they're very vulnerable and sensitive people anyway. And when you do fail like that, it must hurt so bad. And it must, it must take, you must take it really hard so that you think, you know what? It's not even worth it. I don't even want this bad enough to feel this bad about it. You know what I mean?
1: Hard, hard enough to be a, a failure or to feel like you're a failure you're a painter or a writer who does something relatively personal on your own but when you're in the public eye and you're a failure and it's talked about in the media that you're a failure that's the thing that that, that i'm not afraid of writing something or doing something that that doesn't succeed the way i thought it might but it's the backlash that you get from hearing people talk talk down about it and badmouth you about it that it gets to me
0: yeah and a and lot was writing on her um being paid so much money you know, that there's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure on those kind of actors who are, you know, you got to make money for us. You know, you got to be good and you got to make... That's a lot of pressure. I don't... You know, I can understand why she walked away. It is a bit of a mystery, but when you, you know, when we talk about it and you explain how things were, I think it's easy, a little bit easier to understand.
2: And even... Even if you achieve great success, imagine how hard it would be for like, imagine the musician who has this long, large body of work that they're really proud of. And every time they come on stage, everybody just wants them to sing that one hit they had 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) So even even if you're ridiculously successful, there's still, that can be a double-edged sword. Right. Anyway.
0: That's right. Well, that was a really fun podcast, you guys. Thank you.